0: The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Naibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Well, we've arrived, you and I. This is the final episode of Season 1. Altogether, 15 episodes, 13 story episodes, plus two special midnight lunar episodes. I feel like you and I have taken an expedition together. We visited the turn of the century where we witnessed a traveling performer bring his steampunk death machine to town. We lived through a horrifying night in a 50s insane asylum, taken over by its patients, driven by the psychic energy of a fellow inmate. We assassinated a vampire and faced more zombies than one can count. At the end of it all, we remain alive and breathing, barely. I hope you enjoyed this excursion as much as I have. I feel we have a kinship, you and I, and I hope to see where our travels lead in the future. As I said at the top of the season, I planned to release 13 episodes per season and take a two-month break between seasons to produce a new collection of tales. Mid-season, I decided to offer the two extra midnight lunar episodes. I hope you enjoyed them. The time has come for me to take that intra-season break I need to visit the darkest reaches of my mind and come back with even more tales that are sure to cause my parents to worry about me. But don't despair. I plan to keep up the cadence by offering between-season editions. Although these mid-season editions won't have the full production value you've come to expect from full-fledged Terrifying Lies episodes, I'm certain you will love them. Look for them on the first and third Fridays of the off-season months. In the meantime, if you've missed any episodes from Season 1, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. While you're at it, tell your friends about Terrifying Lies. Share your favorite episodes in your social networks. Some of you have been kind enough to get behind the Terrifying Lies podcast financially. I can't thank you enough. That's what's going to keep Terrifying Lies on the air. To those of you who back the podcast at the $0.99 per month level, I'm going to send all of Season 1's stories as high-resolution audio files with no commercials and no commentary. For those of you who back the podcast at the $4.99 per month level, I'll add in a download link so you can get the entire Old Hicks Hypno Nightmare. That's 80 Minutes of Terror, guided by yours truly. It includes an induction, a first-person designer nightmare, and a guided re-entry back into consciousness. For those of you who backed the podcast at the $9.99 per month level, expect to hear from me about mailing you an autographed CD of old Hicks plus a Terrifying Lies Season 1 t-shirt. Of course, I thank you all for listening and sharing the podcast, but I especially thank those of you kind enough to back the program. If you like Terrifying Lies and want to keep it alive, you can become a backer by visiting anchor.fm slash Craig nibo and clicking on the support button. Select one of the backer levels at 99 cents four ninety-nine, or 9.99 per month. You can also visit the Patreon at patreon.com slash terrifying lies and back the podcast. At the respective levels there if you back the podcast at the end of each season plan on receiving a few perks from me the least of which being high resolution downloads of every story and song commercial free For your listening pain and pleasure today, I give you part three of three of the Bloody Journal of Lance King. If this season has a theme, it's gotta be zombies. You might find it interesting that the stories Whistler and the Children and the Bloody Journal of Lance King both take place in the same world. Lance, in his story, references a small town called Farmingham. Farmingham is the setting of yet another tale of the undead that I didn't feature in season one. The third story in this world is called Blue Rinse and a Shotgun. Maybe I'll play it for you as part of season two. The Bloody Journal of Lance King, part three of three, the conclusion. Written and read by Craig NiBo. 14, July 8th, Year 1. This morning, I removed the file cabinet I had placed in front of the office door, scraped along the floor as I pushed it. I winced at the volume of the cabinet. Since leaving Marshall, I've uttered perhaps a paragraph of audible English to myself out loud, although I found silence to be crushing. Noise, particularly banging and struggling, infuses my blood with fear of being discovered. I drew my Glock and stood to the side of the door. With my off hand, I turned the knob and pulled the door open. I rounded the opening, the Glock leading the way, expecting an onslaught of undead, but the room on the other side was empty. I could only hear the lingering hiss, the tinnitus I've self-inflicted with so much loud music in my life. Methodically, panning every corner with my gun, I made my way through the old bank building, through corridors, downstairs, and finally out the back way into an alley. A light post stood sentry, a dumpster huddled to my right. I trained my weapon back and forth and found no undead. I took what seemed to be my first breath of the day, a taste of the ever-spoiling oxygen of a falling age. I righted my mountain bike, mounted it, and kicked off down the alley toward the dilapidated Walmart I had seen on the outskirts of town. I reached Walmart in the late afternoon as I made the distance from the refinery The frequency of undead dwindled to a trickle. Even on a bicycle, I had no trouble circumventing them as they staggered along the road, leaning against cars, limping toward me, turning at the sound of my shifting gears and clicking sprocket. I dismounted as I pulled onto the sidewalk just outside Walmart's entrance and walked my bike into the canting glass of a derailed door. A clatter came from deeper in the store. Something was inside with me. It had sensed me. Didn't know how many undead were shopping the big box store, but I didn't want to risk being trapped. I moved my bike to the toy section, full of board games, squirt guns, action figures, and electronic toys, all so trivial and unimportant now. As I looked at a rack of shrink-wrapped video games, I recalled a time just months ago when we lived high on our overstimulated world. It seemed we got lost in the onslaught of movies, cell phones, texting, tablets video games, and social media. It seemed humanity had gone digital, and all that had been halted in a few hours. Our digital counterparts dissolved into the air like vapor, leaving nothing but pure humanity. Honestly, I didn't miss digital humanity much. The Facebook avatars, the separatism brought on by social networking, texting, and email, I felt emancipated from the pressure, of the barrage of ones and zeros. I remember surfing my Facebook feed and looking at photo after photo of rich, successful, beautiful people posing next to expensive cars, posing on the beach, posing on luxury cruises, posing in Europe, living lives with no bounds. In the fantasy of the digital world, there were no domestic disputes, no sickness, no frailty, no death, only hopes, dreams, and ambitions, realized by everyone but the one taking the time to surf the feed. In the face of so much noise, I often became unsatisfied with my own lot. Such pressure even brought on depression from time to time, seeing only the best sides of everyone else can magnify your own faults. No, I didn't miss it. But facing the alternative, loneliness, wandering the streets and feeding from the last refuse of food left by the frenzying looters, I guess I have to conclude that perfection is a myth. Life only hands out fancy painted time bombs. They might look nice up on the mantle, but eventually they all go off. Could I dare to hope that this whole thing, the waste and wither of society, the breakdown of everything we knew and loved, would be temporary? Unlikely. And even if the undead somehow perish and leave us in a state of recovery, life would be there to meet us ready to hand out more fancy painted time bombs. Maybe at least we can find in all of the loss a reason to value humanity, even in its frail and imperfect form. I found what I wanted in the toy section. I picked up four Estes model rockets and a handful of fuel-grain-powered rocket engines. As I filled my arms with what I needed, I heard something crash at the end of the aisle. I looked up and spotted one of them, a woman, half of her shirt torn away, revealing the remains of a grungy bra, her skin white and littered with red lesions. She spotted me, not a hint of intelligence registered on her face. She leaned toward me until her feet were forced to step. She came in a series of slow, articulated jerks. I backed away, my arms full, easily keeping enough space between us to stay safe. I thought about drying my glock and putting her down, but I decided to save my bullets. I shifted my load to my other hand and pushed the mountain bike toward the front of the store. As I exited, I picked up a roll of masking tape, a pad of drawing paper, and a Zippo lighter with a Harley-Davidson logo etched into its face. I double-bagged everything and tied it to the handlebars. More undead peeked out from the aisles as I pushed out of the store. It struck me how settled I felt in their proximity. In small numbers, I had learned not to fear them. I had learned, rather, to pity them. I rode the two hours it took to get back to the bank building. I leaned my mountain bike against the wall next to the alleyway entrance and spotted a dumpster tucked into an alcove. Should I sleep in there? Had the undead become wise to my camping spot on the third floor? I gave up on the dumpster and entered the bank building, taking my Walmart shopping bag with me. I heard shuffling in the building, and my heart sunk. They had gotten inside. I locked the entrance behind me, shifting my bag of goodies to my off hand. I drew my Glock. Room by room, I moved through the building, the eye of my weapon staring around corners and through doors, just a beat ahead of me. When I reached the teller area of the bank, a line of windows behind glass computers fixed to each workstation, I found the source of the clatter. Three undead walked the reception area, all on the other side of the glass. I imagined them making a run on the bank but not for trapped funds. Human flesh. My human flesh. They sensed me in the building and come to investigate, or they just randomly entered. I was too tired to care. I moved to one of the teller stations and aimed through a circular hole in the thick glass. The three undead never suspected that I was there. With eight shots, I killed them all. I only had a few bullets left. I mourned the loss of any extra firepower with the three of them lying dead in the reception area. I tried the main entrance doors, unlocked. They'd come inside by pushing the oversized glass doors open. Even such a simple act of sentience scared me. I found the manual bolts on the bottoms of the doors and shot them down. The things would have to break the reinforced glass to enter the bank again, and I didn't see that happening. I went upstairs to the office where i had made my bed and locked the door behind me. I laid everything out on a desk in the middle of the room, Three rockets and twice as many engines, a sketch pad, a roll of masking tape, a Zippo lighter. I picked up a pen and hovered over the sketch pad, pausing over what to write. I had surveyed the refinery at length from the roof. I knew the basics of its layout. I drew a map. I put the refinery in the middle of the schematic and marked north with an arrow. The main entrance to the refinery sat on its east end. That entrance was also the most slogged by undead. I'd also spotted a break in the fence on the west end of the refinery, a gate that opened into a parking lot. I circled the smaller west gate and wrote the words here, seven o'clock AM. I looked at the map for a moment, double checking its clarity. I wrote a brief note below the map drawing. My name is Lance King. I am a musician and a survivor. I came because of your smoke. If you mean your smoke is a welcoming beacon, I hope you can help me to enter your house. If you do not welcome me, I will die trying to get to you. If you permit me to join you, I'll lend whatever skills I can to our collective survival. I will attempt to enter your west gate at precisely 7 o'clock a.m. I drew in a deep breath and held it as I read the note one last time. I let it out in a long resigned release. I rolled the note around the body of the largest rocket and secured it with masking tape. I put the rocket nose up on the desk, stood back, and stared at it for a moment. My entire future lay in the fate of a child's toy. I shook my head and wrote two duplicates of the map and note and fixed them to the two other rockets. Back on the roof of the bank, I placed the rockets in a line along the parapet. I aimed the first of them, trying to calculate the rocket's trajectory by gut feel. I struck the Harley-Davidson Zippo and touched off the green cannon fuse that jutted from the end of the engine. A spark ran the length of the fuse. The rocket hissed up into the late afternoon sky. At the apex of its arch, an explosion went off, jettisoning its parachute. The rocket descended. At first, I thought I'd hit my mark on the first try. But wind caught the rocket, moved it off target. It settled into the rest of hundreds of groping undead hands just outside the eastern entrance of the refinery. I swore to myself. I took my time aiming the second rocket, counting for error. I touched it off. The rocket hissed up, nearly out of sight. A tendril of smoke puffed out as it blew the chute. The parachute misfired and didn't deploy, perhaps burned in the jettison charge. The rocket pinwheeled downward and landed behind a building outside the refinery far from my mark picked up the third rocket drew in a steady breath this time I placed the rocket on the parapet at the edge of the roof and stacked a few bricks around it making a kind of launching chute. I licked a finger stuck it into the air wafts of breeze arched over the top of the bank building I adjusted the rocket's aim by shimming it with shingles I peeled from the roof I re-wetted my finger and stuck it up for a final wind test I struck the Zippo and waited for the right moment. After nearly a minute, I felt an ebb in the breeze. I touched off the fuse and watched it shrink, sizzling and spitting. The rocket hissed upward into the sky. I followed it until it disappeared into the wash of smoke that emitted from the refinery. I visored my eyes with one hand and panned across the sky. I spotted it, dangling from its parachute, weaving in the breeze and smoke, uttering a prayer I watched it descend. The rocket landed in the parking lot at the east end of the refinery, inside the fence barrier, out of reach from the undead. I pumped my fist in triumph. The rocket had hit its mark. I remained on the roof until dark, staring at the white patch of parachute flicking in the breeze just inside the compound. Finally, with the sun down, I lost sight of it. Nobody had come for the rocket. I couldn't worry. Those in the refinery would either find it or they wouldn't. I'd go through with my plan, whether it led me to salvation or death. I left the roof and went to my office camping spot. I laid down on my bedroll, put my hands behind my neck, and stared up at the ceiling. Sleep didn't come for a very long time. 15, July 9th, year one. I picked the eastern parking lot for a reason. A long, steep hill dumped into that lot. I wanted speed, and I was hoping for cover fire from the refinery occupants as I neared the entrance. I knew I would get velocity on my bike. It was cover fire I worried about. If my note hadn't been received, I'd ride into a maelstrom of groping arms and jattering teeth. The undead would turn me. Something in their blood infected the living and frosted the mind with an insatiable appetite I had seen in their numbers. Early reports on the radio confirmed this. Before the airwaves blinked out, newscasters had latched onto a reel of a man being turned. I'd watched it over and over while holding my breath. If they tore me apart, I could deal with it. I couldn't deal with becoming one of them. I loaded two Glock magazines, 17 bullets each. I would have to count once I started touching off rounds. I planned to fire 17, change the magazine, then fire 16. I would use the last bullet on myself should I become hopelessly surrounded. A bullet to the head wouldn't hurt. Not really. I tucked the Glock into my waistband, strapped the Gibson over my shoulder, and made my way downstairs to my mountain bike in the alley behind the bank building. I took one last look up the third floor window where i had spent the past couple of nights before getting on my bike and kicking off the terrifying lies podcast will return after this short commercial break welcome back to the terrifying lies podcast I straddled my mountain bike at the top of the three-block hill that ran downward to the eastern gate of the refinery. Undead blocked the entrance. They kept two yards back from the electric fence that ran the perimeter of the compound. They gaped through the intermeshed fence, longing for meat that walked on two legs just beyond their reach. They paid no attention to me. I stood upwind from them. Their minds and appetites were distracted, but the second I rode within their sensory range I knew they would turn their teeth on me. Last chance to back out, I thought, as I looked down at them, but I hadn't come all this way to chicken out. This would either be my re-induction into humanity, or my final moment on Earth. I kicked off and stood on the pedals, felt like I was moving at 100 miles per hour. I must have been going only 35 or so, but I'm unaccustomed to riding at such speed. I'd strapped the Gibson as tightly as I could to my back before setting off, but I felt the thing acting like a sail, bobbing and slamming against me in the wind, resisting the pressure of my streamlined trajectory. When I kicked off, I saw nobody behind the tall eastern gates to greet me. A smarter me would have called the whole thing off, but this final act of desperation had another purpose. If I couldn't live with my own kind, I didn't care to live at all. Making a headlong attempt at nearly impossible odds, merely put an honorable slant to my suicide. Suicide or no, I was riding into the fray. Already, some of the rear ranks of undead turned toward me. Their queer eyes settled on me. What could only be perplexity, they had spotted me, something out of place in their world of the norm. Had they ever had a warm-blooded being come straight at them, much less at such high speed, A few of them peeled out of the crowd and began their slow shambles toward me temporarily forgetting the refinery there may be scores of humans inside the electric fence but there was one with an easy grasp me i leaned into the handlebars as i reached the bottom of the three block grade as i bottomed out i lost sight of the electric gate i could only see masses of undead more of them coming at me they made that rattling guttural noise I had heard so many times since leaving Marshall Junior High School, a sound that terrified me. But, even in the face of so many of them, I felt no fear. This was it. I was going to live, or I was going to die. I drew the Glock from my waistband and fired into the crowd. Not sure how many I hit, I saw a few of them curl back into their numbers, but there was no way to take an accurate aim from the seat of a moving mountain bike. I just fired if they were human they would have ran for cover or at least hit the dirt in some attempt to get away from my shooting but the things seemed oblivious to bullets their numbers fell and they didn't even grant a casual glance they merely stepped over their fallen and kept coming i fired off all 17 of the first magazine i let the bike coast took my hands off the handlebars to slam the second magazine into the weapon i aimed i fired I hit one of them in the head, a woman with a wicker basket hanging from one arm. Her head exploded into a mass of tissue. I remembered Mrs. Pemberthy, my history teacher, back at Marshall Junior High School. She particularly loved the Revolutionary War and had spent most of a semester covering it in detail. She told us kids about the Battle of Bunker Hill and about how William Prescott had told his soldiers not to fire until they saw the whites of the enemy's eyes. I hadn't waited until I could see the whites of the undead's eyes. I sure as hell could see those whites before i saw any sign of the refinery gate opening i touched off 16 of the 17 rounds in the second magazine i allowed myself only a moment's pause to consider my next move before beginning my exit plan i pressed the barrel of the glock against my temple and raised my off hand up from the handlebars i coasted that way gunned ahead off arm up my eyes on the mob of undead straight ahead of me i uttered a brief prayer and flicked my eyes up to the sky for a fleeting second. I tightened my trigger finger to the point of fear. An explosion went off. In shock, I thought I'd blown my head off. I became remotely aware, first, that there was no pain. Then, that I could still hear the sound of the coasting bike chain, click-click-clicking through the derailleur. Fire belched in the center of the clog of undead. Bodies flew like toys, writhing and burning through the air, some of them dismembered in the blast. Smoke billowed downward and outward from ground zero, temporarily obscuring my view of the undead and of the refinery. I held my breath as I coasted into the expanding cloud of smoke and debris. I felt as if I was riding into a hurricane. Something pierced my cheek in the maelstrom. I felt cool fingers touch me from the obscurity of the smoke, but I still had speed on my side and the undead around me couldn't manage to stop me. After a few seconds of blindness, I hit an ebb in the smoke. Hundreds of undead lurked all around me, clambering, groping, impaired by the same loss of vision inflicted by the smoke that I had. I stood on the pedals, finding new vigor in the temporary discombobulation of senses. The bike trundled over debris. Something punctured the front tire. Pop! Hiss! I kept riding. Just as I regained a sense of positioning in the haze, the undead came at me. I expected to see hunger in their faces, a sense of animalistic instinct, an unquenchable addiction for what only I had to offer them. But I saw nothing. Only listlessness. They came at me in their slow gaits, pinwheeling and staggering. As my tire lost its final breath of stability, pedaling became a chore. I did my best to circumvent the obstacle course of outstretched hands, open mouths, and shambling feet. For a moment, I thought I might actually make it to the electric fence. The grinding rim of my front tire caught an edge and my mountain bike endowed, sending me ass over tea kettle over the handlebars. My final shot reported as I hit the pavement. The bullet chipped concrete somewhere yards away and ricocheted with a whine off into the smoke, taking my final chance to clean death with it. They came at me in clumps. All I could see was teeth and outstretched arms. I punched and kicked, trying to avoid a fog of open mouths. Breathing the heavy smoke threatened to stop me as thoroughly as any of their infected bites. I rasped for air and felt my strength leave. Finally, I consented. They would have me. I hoped they would kill me, even if by drawing and quartering me, rather than turn me into one of them. I didn't want to end up like Mr. Barry. Whom I had spotted on the school grounds back at Marshall Junior High an insentient mass of rotting flesh, consigned to walking the roads in search for ever-dwindling supply of human flesh. I drew a final breath and sneered up at them as they closed. Choke on me, you bastards. The ground shook. Years ago, I played in a grunge band called Sleeves of Mercy. I quit the band due to a bass player who insisted on plugging into a pair of two by two twelve inch cabs, driven by a head amplifier that probably should have been regulated by the power company. Whenever the bass player-he called himself Pump-hit notes in the low range, he shook my core. I still have tinnitus from Pump's obnoxious playing. The ground rumble reminded me of Pump, with his double cab and shaved head all amperage. No technique. Three of the undead above me disappeared as if whisked by an invisible cable. The rest of them turned their heads in unison toward the source of the concussion. More reports cracked over the area. Another of the undead fell, its head blowing up like a melon. I flipped onto my hands and knees and crawled toward the eastern gate, staying low. I recognized the concussions for what they were. Artillery? Mortar shells? Grenades? I didn't care. The clackety-clack of automatic weapons followed the mortar fire coming from the eastern gate, coming toward me. As I crawled, my guitar case got caught around the thigh of an undead girl who wore the remains of a soiled prom dress. She hissed down at me, I yanked, bringing her to her knees. She reached for me with a claw-like hand. I drew back and slugged her so hard that pain coiled through my wrist. She snapped back on impact, but I could see that she planned to come at me again. I went to work on her with my boots, throttling her with my waffle stomper heels, screaming as I kicked. Someone grabbed me under the arms and pulled me away. I the around and threw a few punches at my new assailant, a gray-haired man dressed in a flannel shirt that smelled like body odor. Hold it, boy! I'm trying to get you out of here, the man yelled as he dragged me along. My eyes must have expanded to quarters at hearing actual words come from an actual functioning set of vocal cords. I struggled to my feet, tripping over debris and fallen undead. It took half a dozen awkward steps to regain my footing. I got it, I said. The man let me go and wheeled around. He held a micro Uzi. He stepped between the undead and me and fired a series of short bursts into the oncoming horde. Run like hell, kid. We can't hold them for long. I wheeled around and leaned into a sprint. There were more gunmen in the fight. They'd formed a kind of path through the crush of undead and were keeping them at bay with gunfire for the time being. The men and women kept their eyes on the fight as I ran toward the now-open gate. The gunmen allowed the pathway to close like a zipper as they withdrew behind me. I lost my footing just as I made the gate. I pinwheeled for a half-dozen ill-planted steps and crashed to the pavement, skinning my hands in the fall. I winced as I gingerly turned over onto my bottom and inspected my palms, blood poured from dozens of micro cuts. I didn't see myself playing the guitar for at least a week. Firing continued as the last of the self-appointed soldiers withdrew into the refinery. Two men slid the gate shut on a track. The undead, hungry and newly agitated, pushed against the fence, clambering with outstretched hands, some of them even biting the thick wire. The man with the gray hair and flannel shirt looked up at a high window on the second floor of the refinery. Clear! He shouted and snapped off a quick nod. He looked at me I searched his expression for some sign of acceptance. As if he read my trepidation, he winked and smiled, the crow's feet at his temples creasing. He turned to the wire gate and lowered his micro uzi to his side a hum and crackle came from the fence the undead crunched up against the wire went rigid with electric current i don't know what kind of power ran through the fence but it must have been phenomenal because i smelled the things cooking in the amperage one of the undead a man with a white shirt and the remains of a blue necktie convulsed so violently that his head became a blur i watched him in fascination his quaking increased a breaking point. His head exploded with a dull fuck. The human, self-appointed soldiers broke out in laughter. Zombies cooked on the wire for nearly a minute before backing away. More than I could count lay on the ground just outside the fence, lifeless. Whoever had slammed on the juice in the upper chamber had done them a service by mercy-killing them. The man with the gray hair and flannel shirt walked to my side, his boot heels clocking on the pavement, He pushed the micro-Uzi behind him on its strap and crouched down. He reached out, palms up, and nodded toward my hands. I laid my wrists in his palms. He looked over the damage. The bleeding had stopped, but bits of gravel and tar peppered the ruined flesh. Don't look too bad, he said. I'll get you to the infirmary and we'll get you some antiseptic. Should heal up real nice. Thank you, I said. The man nodded. He stood up pulling me to my feet as he did so. He looked at the sea of undead outside the refinery. Won't be long now. Until what? Until we take it all back. They need to eat, you know, just like we do. And they're running out of food. All we gotta do is wait. How long? Uh, A month. I don't know, maybe a year. A year? I asked, trying to hide the desperation from my voice. He turned to me and cocked his head to the side. He stood that way for a moment. "'looking me up and down. "'Do we have enough food?' I asked. "'Got seeds?' he said. "'We're raising hogs. If "'We ration she'll be able to make it. "'Passing the time's the hard part. "'Clock just keeps tick-tock ticking. "'Getting tired of sitting, you know.' "'I remember the long hours I spent "'back at Marshall Junior High School. "'I knew the sound of the clock all too well. "'Looking back, I don't think it would have been "'much longer before I had lost my mind.' Why did you let me in? I asked. I'll only eat your food. The man laughed, (laughs) full and loud, laying his head back. He settled down and put one of his baseball mitt palms on my shoulder. What do you got there on your back? I eyed him dubiously and protectively raised a hand to the strap over my shoulder. Guitar? He snickered. I know that, dumbass. What kind of guitar? Gibson Custom Super 400. Hollow body, electric. The man pursed his lips together and hissed out a weak whistle, his eyebrows raised in appreciation. Ooh, you know how to play it? I used to be a professional musician, I lied. But hell, who was going to know, anyways? That's why we brought you in, like I say. Hardest parts passing the time. He smiled and held out one of his hands. Name's Sparks. I'm on bass. It hurt but I shook his hand anyways. He ignored the traces of blood I left on his palm. You ain't no country bumpkin, are you? What? If you go wanting to play that Clint Black Toby key shit, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to order the boys to put up that gate and I'm going to throw you back out there. I hate country, I said. boy. Barks put a hand on my shoulder. We walked toward one of the refinery buildings. Don't tell me you're into that pansy-ass yuppie rock, I said. Might as well let you know I'm not playing any Eric Clapton, Hendrix, or Almond Brothers. We got a joke around here among the boys who can play, Sparks said. When any of us can't stick a lick because it's just a little out of reach, we blame it on playing like Eric. When you can't play fast, it's the clap, man. You just have to shake the clap. I laughed. I was beginning to like Sparks, beginning to like him a lot. This has been The Bloody Journal of Lance King, Part 3 of 3, The Conclusion, written and read by Craig Naibo. For today's song, continuing to draft from the zombie theme, I thought I'd give you a song from the second Zombie Sing-Along album. The tune is a folksy joint where the writer recounts day-to-day life during the zombie apocalypse. He talks about his friends, family, and about changes in life since the undead have marched on society. The name of the song is derived from the great the name of the song is derived from the greatest zombie movie of them all, *Night of the Living Dead*. I now give you, "Put Another Zombie on the Fire."
1: Days are gray with longing for the bygones Of a life with little worries on ahead. But we're cutting down the sheaves of undead and unbeliefs That the times are getting better, no more sad Even Grandma Mildred's reaching for a shotgun, and Uncle Buck's out swinging with a bat. My cousin Freddy's in the trees with a box of M80s, and it's anything and everything at that. So put. Zombie on the fire Make him crackle Make him snap Make him pop Cause we're running Out of wood So I really think You should Light the sky with sparks Of zombie we have child don't know anything about their past but they're burning rather well the warm places that we dwell and we'll burn them from their first on to their last well uncle Bunch of bite marks in the fight. Now we're cooking up his hide, warming him up from inside. On the fire with his friends who ain't alive. So put another zombie on the fire. Make it crackle, make him snap. Apart. Cause we're running out of wood So I really think you should Light the sky with sparks of zombie We have child char-
0: Again, thanks for joining me for season 1 of The Terrifying Lies podcast. I look forward to reuniting with you on the first Friday of January 2023 for episode 1 of season 2. The second season begins with a bang. I've been working on an epic three-part weird western tale that will take you to yet another landscape of thrills. Remember to look for the off-season editions on the first and third Fridays of the month between now and the premiere episode for Season 2. Until next season, sweet dreams. Or should I say, terrible nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here.